Welcome to Coached Soul, a podcast for a better you. Here's your host, Steve Hudgens. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm Steve, your host. I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This podcast is about how to be a better you. Sometimes we interview a variety of people to help you to look at things from a different perspective. We appreciate you as the listener. And today's topic can cause some triggers for most people who have come close to death or has experienced recently a loved one or a tragic event. In today's episode, Julia talks to me about my near-death experience a couple of weeks ago, and I just wanted to be vulnerable in regards to how I was able to manage the anxiety and stress that I was going through. Again, thank you for joining us. Hey, welcome back to our show today. And Julia, it's so great to have you as a co-host on the show. And what a great day to be alive. It is a beautiful day to be alive, Steve. And I'm so grateful to be here with you as well. So speaking of that word alive, recently, (laughs) this past week, you had an experience that brought you greater understanding um, that just really impacted your life. Can you share with us a little bit what happened there? I mean... You know, when you think about life and death situation, 2018, I was, uh, well, actually 2017, I was diagnosed with 34% chance of living by 2021 with cancer. Cancer is eradicated. It won't come back. Uh, They did a recent CT scan. So I'm in almost my fourth year being cancer free. But Monday, August 22nd, Mm. prior to that was Sunday. So we'll we'll start there with Sunday. Sunday, I started having rigors. That's a medical term for shaking violently. That's like you jumping into an ice cold pool where you have to break the ice and you jump in butt naked. You come out and it's freezing. You start to shake real bad. It was like that, but I did it for 35 minutes. Well, okay. And just so our listeners know, I do ice baths on a regular basis. So I understand (laughs) what that is. I do it willingly. So your body, you had no control over this for 35 minutes. No control on Sunday. It did produce a fever. It got up to 102. It vanished overnight. I thought things were fine. I went to my office to meet with my first uh, patient or client and was successful. And about quarter till to 10 till is when we started wrapping it up. And I started knowing something was coming on. Mm. So I contacted my nine o'clock and the rest of the afternoon up to about 12 and said, look, I'm going to have to go to the emergency room. I'm sorry for the short notice to cancel. I started to shake a little bit more, not as bad as Sunday, but I noticed I started shaking. I drive over to the VA hospital off of Mingo. And I think it's 91st street here in Tulsa. I thought I can't walk in because I'm shaking so bad. 
So I make a telephone call and I ask the person on the phone, let me talk to a nurse. Well, I didn't realize my prior my primary team is off on Monday. However, the nurse on duty says, can't take the call. We're busy. The guy says, okay, I'm going to send you to the triage nurse. Triage nurse asked me a slew of questions. No, I don't have COVID. No, I don't have flu. This is what's really going on. She said, and you're, and you're still in your car at this time. I'm still in my car. And, and I carry a, an emergency, like in the airplanes, you have these little vomit bags. I got that ready to go because I knew it was coming. You know, you shake up a Dr. Pepper, you're going to spew. Yeah, and, go somewhere. Um, I, I just, my breathing started increasing more, almost like hyperventilating. So I managed to drive across the street to Hillcrest South. Walk from the parking lot into the hospital to IC into the emergency room. And he says, what can I do for you? And it took me a while to catch my breath. And I'm like, Steve, you can't be this old walking from your car to the parking lot. And I'm huffing and puffing. Mm -hmm. So they admitted me to the emergency room. Uh, any veteran that goes to an emergency room has to call an 800 number to get an authorization to be seen by the ER by a civilian hospital. Okay, wait a minute. Let's just pause because I know sure. in a future episode, we're going to be talking about our veterans. Yes. Let me get this straight because I'm not a veteran. <laughs> I was a first responder, but I'm definitely not a veteran. Sure. You were telling me that one hospital was too busy for you. And now the second one because you're going into this, you're walking in and you still have to get authorization from what is it? The veterans administration for you to be able to be seen at this hospital. Yeah. So clarify it's the VA clinic here in Tulsa. Okay. That I was trying to get in. Got it. And they said, get to the emergency room ASAP because the clinic is not equipped for emergencies. Understood. Okay. So they said, get to the nearest emergency room. Well, that's about 500 feet across the street. Here's Hillcrest South. I'm walking in. So I called, as soon as they admitted me, I called the 800 number and say, hey, I've been admitted. They give me a authorization number and I keep it just to make sure to say, hey, when my bills start rolling in, here's my auth number. I need to make sure those bills are being taken care of by the VA. Okay. So you have that impact on you at the same time, trying to make sure. Well, I also called a friend and they came and met me at the emergency room. They wouldn't let them in because I haven't been tested for COVID yet. So they did the rapid COVID test, never had one done. And negative, flu, negative. So they allowed this person to come back and we visited. They took the blood and they came back and said my troponin was 0 
Now let's pause for a second because sure. I know I had this same question. Explain for to our audience what treponin. Am I saying it correctly? Is treponin? Troponin. There we go. Yeah, troponin. So troponin is an enzyme that your heart puts out that indicates the stress of the heart, which they thought I was possibly having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. But my chest wasn't tight. My heart wasn't hurting. My left side. You know, we hear the signs about having a heart attack. I didn't have any of those signs whatsoever. My school, I'm going for my doctoral degree, just started. And I got a week's worth of clients that I have to see. Because as a private practice, you don't show or they don't show, you don't get to eat. Well, I eat. Because I put back <laughs> money, okay? Here we go, audience. We're going to make sure Steve knows how to eat, y'all. <laughs> I, I got to eat. You know, I got to maintain my girlish figure, you know. Uh, yeah, so Beautiful. when you think about the troponin, they thought I had a heart attack and they asked me to stay. Okay. So I said, okay, I'll stay. Now, mind you, this was 9.15 I was admitted. It was 4.30 until I got to a regular room. No food. No hookup to an IV bag. So the only source of food that I had was ice chip water. Now, they found a little bit of snacks for me to kind of eat when I got to my normal room. It's funny because I remember my room. My room number is 409. So I know I had a clean room with 409. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> so, okay. So here it is Tuesday morning at 0100 in the morning. 0100 to 1 o'clock in the morning. I shook like I never shook before. I could not catch my breath. I was going into septic shock in the process of dying. They call a code. All I remember was 12 nurses in my room, and that was it. There was no way they could have given me a shot because I was shaking so badly. Mm -hmm. But what was so mind-boggling is I don't remember how I got from that room 409 to Hillcrest South ICU 6. Your body, your body and your brain, your nervous system, everything went into survival mode. It, it did. It did. Yeah. And they did everything they could to try to help me. They were pouring in uh, antibiotics into me. I felt like a lab rat poked, prodded, scanned, you name it. They did it. What's so odd is because of my faith, I wasn't scared. Mm. I had such a peace about everything that I knew if I was going to go, I would die happy. So let's talk about that for just a second. Sure. You're, what happened over the next few days while you were in the hospital is, is really interesting. But one of the things that I'm aware of is the impact that being there alone without 
familial support mm. during that episode. I mean, first you're admitting you're pretty much having to admit yourself. Then you're having to get authorization to make sure and be responsible for the fact that your bills are going to be paid because you're not in the hospital that typically would treat veterans because they're not equipped to do what you would need it done. Um, now you've gone into the septic shock and you're being introduced to all sorts of medical interventions, which no blame on them. They're trying to save your life, Correct. but you're doing it alone. Mm. Tell tell me what that was like for you. I chose to stay here in Broken Arrow. My daughter is married and has a son who was going to turn three on Saturday. I knew that was coming and I wanted to kind of surprise them and go down and be there for his birthday. My parents, my dad turned 81 the week before and his health condition is starting to go downhill. So there's no way my parents can make it up here because mm -hmm. they live in Midwest city, which is outside of Oklahoma city. My son don't know the exact whereabouts because last I heard he was military. He's married and has a two and a half year old daughter. And that that's a whole nother uh, separate issue at some other time. My aunt, which is my dad's sister, her and I are very close. Interesting story about my aunt. Because she went to college, became a teacher, wants to be independent, wants to travel. The man in college proposed to her and she turned him down. 17 years later, they meet at some function again. He's never married. She never married, proposes, and they've been married for 30 years now. Oh, my gosh. That is the sweetest. And she's always said, you're the closest to the son that I could ever have. Mm. Just talking to my aunt, it, um, it touched me. Because she started crying on the phone and says, I can't imagine you being up there alone with no family. I wasn't there for my father or my mother's death. Mm. And I'm like, don't count me out yet. I'm a fighter. I'm a warrior. We'll get through this. Here we are into Wednesday. And it's two o'clock in the morning to receive my antibiotics. The nurse comes in, says, hey, I'm going to get your antibiotics. She looks at me and says, let's clean you up a little bit. I said, please do. I'm like a fish. I stink after three days. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm there Monday through Wednesday. It's three days. You know, the fish begins to stink. And oh I said, okay, gosh. let's get cleaned up. Well, so then, the let, let's just break for just a second there, because <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to understand. Yes, you might have really have smelled bad, but there's also just a sense of personal dignity. Yes. There is something that connects with our physiological and our psychological aspects mm. when we are, when we go from being um, 
in the, these hospital smells, the band-aids, the cleaning fluids, the, all this stuff. And our, and then our system is our pores are literally pouring out all these things. Okay. It is not a pleasant smell, but the, just the taking of the time from the, the medical staff to say, Hey, let's clean you up a little bit restores a little bit of that personal dignity that you couldn't give yourself in those first few days. And, and, and I just think that is so vital and what a beautiful servant attitude and space to offer that to you. I just, I just think it's beautiful. I mean, she has a heart of gold, Michelle. I don't know her last name, but she was there in ICU six with me on Wednesday. I couldn't ask for a better nurse. And here's why. During the process of washing my hair for me, I hear this voice of a male coming around the corner and says, number five is about to pass. And he, she says, okay, I'll be there in a second. He peeps around, looks at the curtain and says, okay, I'll tell you when it gets closer to time. So we're trying to hurry up and finish. He comes back down again and says, well, she changed her mind. She's going to stay. <laughs> so we found that humorous. And during that time, I said, look, is there something that a nurse does during this time frame to prepare a, a person who's about to go into the afterlife? Getting ready to transition. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is what hit me. She said, um, July 1st. This 81-year-old woman was admitted into ICU. No friends, no family have come to visit. Now, mind you, this is August, uh, what would be the 24th, I think. 24th. Yeah. She says, no, um, I'm going down to sit with her and hold her hand to let her know she doesn't have to die alone. And here I am in alone, sort of speak, in the hospital with no family. Now, mind you, they, they, they can't come up, and I understand that. But at the same time, I had that peace of knowing that God is with me. Mm -hmm. That's just my faith. And that sustained a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that no matter what happens to me, I can transition. And I'm at peace with that. Do you think that part of the, the impact that this 81-year-old beautiful soul had on you in that mm -hmm. moment, because you're in two, what, two rooms apart, I think, do you think that a part of you wondered if she had that peace, if she, if she knew that she was transitioning into an afterlife that, that em, em, embraced her spiritual beliefs, because we all have different ones, mm -hmm. but did that, did you wonder that? Did you want to go down and hold her hand? Did you want to ask, Hey, as a chaplain, you know, going to show up for her is what was going you, on with you there? Well, the funny thing is back in, uh, 1990, I graduated with a bachelor's in Bible slash philosophy with another major of communications. 
Um, I wanted, to, I thought about doing journalism, broadcasting, those type of things. And yeah, I just, I, I felt something for her, wondering what her life might have been. Mm-hmm. You know, she passed away about 3.30, 3.45, I think, uh, in the morning. I'm sitting here trying to get finished, cleaned up. And I notice the nurse comes back in with, you know, she's got her white sweatshirt off, has a different shirt on. Her eyes are red and puffy. And immediately I said, are you okay? It's okay for you to go take a break. Don't worry about me. I want you to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. There's such a connectivity when you share in a tragic moment experience of wanting to take care of the other person mm-hmm. because she was impacted I've only seen one person in my life pass. They take that deep breath and they slowly let it out and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine what had happened in that room when the hand goes limp, the body starts growing cold, the warmth of the soul leaves. But the warmth of the memory impacted me in such a way that it's like life is short. And we have to be able to reconcile the trauma, the hurts. There's no room for that in our life. Nope. There, honestly, Steve, there isn't. There, we, we take our breath in there is no guarantee that there will be another inhale we know there's going to be an exhale oh yeah we just don't know if it will be the last one okay and and all the things that the frivolous things that we spend our time on the resources that we waste um the time that we hold on to stuff that has no we think in the moment it has bearing and meaning but the reality is is our life is like super super short and i i think that what happened in that moment the, as you're reflecting on this this beautiful woman's life and we don't know any of her details but that almost makes the story more intriguing because for me, I'm like, what was her story? Right. Who is going to who is going to remember her? You don't even know her name. You just know that she was this 81 year old lady mm-hmm. that was by herself. So, and and I think when it comes to self reflection, that that is the moment where we ask the, those very prominent questions: Who will remember us? What legacy are we going to leave leave for others? Will we die alone? at the, you know, we all go alone, but will someone be there in attendance with us? 
And I've, I've actually had the beautiful opportunity to sit at bedside with uh, several that have passed on for a while. I wanted to be a hospice chaplain. And, and so at some point in time, I'd love to share, you know, some of those experiences, but I do think it's a precious, precious time to just really take an inner look at where we are, because there are the five regrets of the dying, which at this moment, we're not going to be able to cover in this particular uh, podcast, but that is definitely something to, to reflect upon so that hopefully we can avoid having any regrets when that time of transition comes. And I know we're running out of time Yes. and I want to close with this because there is a book about a nurse that wrote the regrets of the dying. And I cannot for the life of me, maybe we can look it up uh, here shortly, but here's one thing I want to leave. My mantra for me is I want people to know me as regardless of my mistakes, Steve came into this world and left it in a better place than he found it. If we can all have that attitude, what a great place this world would be and such caring. Julia, great time with (laughs) you. I look forward to us meeting again to kind of pick up part two of this story because there's a lot going on here. There is a lot to unpack. (laughs) Yes. All right. We'll catch you all next time. Be kind, be safe, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, be safe and be kind.